The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Welcome back to the State House Takeout with your takeaways from this week up on Beacon Hill. And uh, again this week, we've got Colin Young, Katie Lannon, and Matt Murphy here to collaborate on this podcast. And we saw a good deal of uh, collaboration come to light uh, yesterday with uh, an announcement on education funding reform. Um, I like how you did that, Sam. Oh, I thank you, Matt. Yes. Uh, It was just a week or two ago that the governor said uh, that this much-awaited education funding reform bill uh, might not come out until 2020, and there was a lot of uncertainty even up until earlier this week on when we might see this. And, hey, next year would have been five years after the Foundation Budget Review Commission uh, recommended such sweeping overhauls as we're seeing proposed here. Um, But it was this week that the leaders of both branches the House and Senate uh, got together in the state library and uh, uh, unveiled this uh, consensus bill, a uh, $1.5 billion plan. And I know uh, all three of you have uh, written about this issue at some point or another, but Katie, you've, you've really been covering it in depth lately. And um, so let's start with you. And with all these glowing reviews from uh, advocates and proponents of, uh, of reforms here, uh, what's What's the secret recipe that's got everybody kind of on board with this? One thing I, I do think is important to note before we dive in is that, yeah, we've heard we've heard some really positive reviews of this so far, but everyone's review kind of came with the caveat of, well, we're still reviewing the bill, but this is momentous. This is a generational things like that. But people are, are still kind of parsing out the details of this 28-page bill, um, which was the product, as was highlighted many times during the rollout of a collaborative effort between the House and Senate chairs, uh, Rep. Alice, Alice Peisch and Senator Jason Lewis. They, you know, after their March hearing, they were doing trips to, to different school districts. They were having meetings. Um, so according to the the lawmakers, and it should be noted that they rolled this out in a in a joint appearance with the Senate president and the speaker in kind of the the neutral territory of the third floor of the state library rather than a house room or a Senate room. Um, so from their perspective, it's the the collaboration between the two branches. One thing we're hearing from a lot of the activists who were who were really pushing for this bill and have been keeping the pressure up since talks collapsed last summer is that the pressure on lawmakers got them to this point. You know, that's kind of their view on it, that the rallies, the letters, the meetings, the letter writing campaigns, all those things kind of made it very clear what people were looking for in this bill. Mm-hmm. What changes or compromises do we see here from, well, compared to the versions uh, last go around when, when talks broke down? Well, the the biggest difference is really the the process. While we saw last session the the Senate pass a bill and then the House pass its own bill, this it appears to be one bill that both branches are going to work off of, and it does it. It uses the uh, the seven year timeline that we've seen in the the governor's bill. It's uh, one point four billion in Chapter seventy 
aid would be kind of equivalent in funding to the level proposed in uh, the Promise Act, sponsored by Senator Sonia Chang Diaz, Rep. Mary Keefe, and Rep. Aaron Vega. Um, but you know, it is a a committee bill. Um, Chairwoman Peish pointed out that it there are differences from all of the the proposals that they were considering, the governor's, the Promise Act, and the the uh, Representative Tucker bill. And it does, um, and it, it does include elements of all of those bills. There's some some things that weren't part of uh, previous discussions that the the governor recommended that are that are in this bill, including uh, some foundation budget changes for for guidance and psychology services, incorporating those into the formula. Right. And- Katie, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think this bill, for the first time, at least in the House, we're seeing a plan come from House leadership tackling all the major recommendations of the Foundation Budget uh, Review Commission. Uh, I think, if I'm right, when they went into those conference talks, those uh, failed, really disastrous conference talks at the end of the 2017-2018 session, the Senate had passed this big comprehensive bill. And the House passed a much smaller bill that I I think tackled one or two. uh, They might have left uh, the low-income and special education components, or or, uh, you you might remember better, but they left a couple of these components out of their bill, which really seemed to doom those talks from the start. Yeah, it was the the House last session kind of wanted to to gather more information about low income, and I believe it was uh, English language learners. Um, And one of the things that, that Speaker DeLeo referenced in the in the media briefing yesterday was that the commission's report you know didn't go as in depth on low-income students as it did in the other areas that's the special education the healthcare, and um and english language learners and that it did acknowledge a, a need for more information there so the house has in previous approaches wanted to to get more information there before deciding to dive in but they um they seem to have found a, a path forward that works for them. Did the Senate president or speaker say uh, Thursday, uh, or did they give a reason that the Senate is going to go first on this bill? I know it doesn't make you know tax code changes, so the House doesn't have to go first. But was there an explanation of, of why it's going to go Senate and then House? They didn't. And we did ask them kind of which because it, it, we hadn't seen the bill itself at that point. We didn't have a number for it. So we, I did ask, actually, which branch was going first. And uh, Chairman Lewis answered that it would be the Senate. It would be a Senate bill. Um, and I don't, I don't know if there's a particular strategy to that, but it is the, the bill they are using as kind of the vehicle to redraft is a, is a Lewis bill. And Colin, you, I like that you mentioned taxes because they did come out and say that no new taxes would be needed to pay for this. And if you're wondering where they get a $1.5 billion without raising taxes, you're probably not alone. I mean, so are we. They they say that they can pay for this. Uh, obviously, the state is flush with money right now, but this is a seven-year phase-in. Uh, a lot of economists think that we could be on the verge of another recession. And, and there's also this, uh, you know, the millionaire's tax proposal hanging out there that they've long said has been for education and transportation investment. But they're now saying they don't necessarily need that tax money to pay for this overhaul of Chapter 70 funding. So, uh, you know, certainly something to watch as they get ready to debate this and uh, and as we move forward and we watch revenues come in month to month. Yeah, that could be an interesting wrinkle as at least the House plans this fall to, to start debating revenues specifically for transportation infrastructure. Um, like you mentioned, that, that 
roughly $2 billion that the millionaire's tax would have pulled in was supposed to be for education and transportation. But now here's, you know, billion and a half for education over seven years that they say, you know, don't, they won't need a tax for. It'll be interesting to see how those two arguments um, um, proceed on parallel tracks. The, the other interesting thing about that is between both the, the seven-year implementation timeline and the uh, no dedicated or required new revenue source is really modeled after the original education bill, the uh, Education Reform Act of 1993. And that's been something people have been pointing to this whole you know saga, the whole 1,418 days since the Foundation Budget Review Commission report came out, but who's counting? <laughs> Feels like yesterday, right? But, um, the, you know, the, the idea that was it, what people have been saying has been, if they could do it in 1993, we can do it now. Um, of course, there's been a lot of economic changes since 1993, and there's a lot uh, more economic changes, whether it be a recession, whether it be new taxes, kind of on the looming on the horizon, whether or not they materialize. And that's not to say the lawmakers can't find a way to spend additional tax revenue on education in addition to this, because this, you know, really gets at that foundation of formula and foundation budgets for K to 12 education. But there's, uh, you know, universal pre-K people have talked about in the past, uh, a whole host of things that uh, additional money could be spent on. There's the uh, the companion bill to the Promise Act, the Cherish Act, which has also been backed by the the Fund Our Future campaign. That's for higher education. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where the the momentum around that goes now that this is on a uh, more solid path. And how's this all going to play out, Katie? Starting next week, right? Is that what we're expecting? So we're looking at a maybe Senate Ways and Means Committee release next week, but interestingly, they're not getting this on on the floors right away uh senator lewis projected a uh october 3rd tentative date for a, a senate debate so there's a little bit of time for people to review it still figure out ways they might want to amend it and um you know lewis said he's expecting to see amendments he expects people to have a lot of ideas and i i've already heard from a few people on the advocacy side who want something done to the bill in one way or another, whether it involves college and career prep, whether it involves potential changes around charter schools, there, there's lots of things people are going to be looking for. And that's where things get dangerous. Uh, you stray, stray from this, this big compromise, uh, it gets more complicated to sort out. So maybe, maybe the governor will be right after all, and we won't actually see anything until 2020. Yeah. And even though, uh, you know, they did spend extensive time working on this bill, the House and Senate sides before it came out, uh, Senator Lewis also wouldn't rule out the potential of it uh, ending up in conference committee once it's through the two branches. All right. Well, that's a very good and and thorough discussion. Uh, Before we leave this topic, uh, Katie, could you um, just walk us through a couple other highlights from the bill? Um, What else is in here? There's a, a 21st century uh, education trust fund. What, what would that do? Yeah, that's a that's a ten million dollar uh, annual appropriation for that fund, which um, the money would go out to to districts pursuing innovative approaches to to learning, um, trying new things. There's interestingly the cap on um, school construction projects through the Massachusetts School Building Authority would be increased. There's, I think, as we've all seen, is, you know, wherever you are in the state, there's really a school construction boom right now, and that would allow more projects to get in the pipeline. 
there's some some changes to the special education reimbursement program known as the circuit breaker that would expand that program to cover transportation costs. And the the legislature is using this bill to, to recommit itself to fully fund uh, charter school tuition reimbursement uh, with a three-year phase in for that. All right, thanks, Katie. Um, now we uh, we we hear overhead uh, all the news choppers uh, that are covering the climate strike uh, out outside, and I know there's uh, thousands of folks uh, marching around the uh, state house area right now, and. Um, Earlier on, uh, Senator Markey uh, came out of uh, his office building over at Government Center and joined the climate strike. And we heard this week from a number of environmental groups who are uh, pledging to stand with uh, Senator Markey as uh, we get ready for uh, an announcement tomorrow from Congressman Kennedy that he's planning to primary uh, uh, Senator Markey. Uh, uh, Matt, how, how are things falling here in terms of uh, folks' allegiances? Uh, how many folks are, 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 are torn between these two? Yeah, Ed Markey, the co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. And uh, like you said, the environmental groups, just the tip of the iceberg and a number of people and organizations coming out saying that they're sticking with Ed Markey. And I think what's interesting here is that uh, you know, Markey has been known, he's been running for re-election for quite some time. He's been out there campaigning. He's been calling groups, lawmakers. I talked to Senator Cindy Cream, who's actually a constituent of Joe Kennedy, said she loves Joe Kennedy, but she committed to Markey uh, a long time ago. And I think that's what you're seeing play out, uh, especially here on Beacon Hill. A lot of longtime Democrats who uh, known Ed Markey and committed to him early on, not anticipating uh, that Joe Kennedy would take this plunge. Uh, and, and not wait, but actually primary, uh, a longtime incumbent, uh, are kind of being torn between the two sides. So what we're seeing is a lot of nice words being said about Kennedy, uh, but people sticking uh, by Ed Markey. That's not to say that Joe Kennedy's not going to have his support, and I think uh, we'll see some of that on Saturday in East Boston when he officially uh, launches his campaign. Who do you expect to be there with him? I don't know. We have not seen the details of this uh, rally yet, uh, but we do expect that he's going to be rolling out, uh, if not at the rally, uh, then after the rally, some uh, endorsements from some national Democrats who are with him. A lot of the coverage has been focused on people uh, urging him to wait, uh, senators uh, who he will join in Congress uh, if he is uh, successful in winning, and early polls show that he does enter this race as the front runner. But a lot of people saying that he should have waited his turn, uh, you know, maybe wait to see if Senator Warren's seat opens up, should she be successful in uh, winning the White House, or if not, uh, he would have to wait, you know, another five, six years uh, for a potential open uh, Senate seat. And uh, just like we saw Ayanna Presley. Uh, a year ago, running uh, on the idea that, uh, you know, quote, change can't wait. Uh, Joe Kennedy is not waiting. Uh, and it's kind of uh, shocked uh, the establishment. Yeah, even uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, former House colleague of uh, Ed Markey, when, when he was in that branch, uh, said that uh, it would be a, a loss for the House. She had sort of a curt, curt response. Uh, Katie? Yeah, I just wanted to point out, um, you know, Commonwealth Mag reported today or, or had a, an op-ed um, by the mayors of uh, Salem and Newton, voicing their support for for Joe Kennedy and I think it'll be interesting to watch as we you know our focus will kind of be on who does what at the state level but it'll be interesting to see how the in the the locals and the municipal races as we're in this kind of municipal election season those people are often uh tapped into kind of the activism on the ground and it'll be interesting to see where uh, where some of those folks line up it's a good point uh Kim Driscoll and, and Ruth Ann Fuller from uh Salem and Newton 
Newton, Newton, of course, uh, Kennedy's hometown and the right. northern uh, end of that district, which runs, you know, from the western suburbs of Boston, the Newtons and the Wellesleys and the Brooklines, as I'm sure we're going to talk about in a minute. But <laughs> uh, and it also stretches all the way down to Fall River. So uh, an interesting district that has some of those fishing concerns, but also some of the uh, greater Boston metro concerns. Uh, obviously, uh, we're seeing a, a lot of people, though, step up uh, from this northern uh, Boston centric area of the district uh, with some interest in Kennedy's seat that he's vacating. Why uh, Why do you bring up Brookline, Matt? <laughs> I bring up Brookline because it seems like everywhere I turn, there's another person from Brookline getting ready to run for Joe Kennedy's seat. And I guess we'll start with Treasurer Deb Goldberg, uh, probably the biggest name and most prominent politician in the Democratic Party to express some interest. Uh, Colin and I wrote on, uh, I think it was Tuesday, Uh, or Monday, uh, she filed paperwork with the FEC, a statement of candidacy to open her committee. Now, her uh, people close to her say that she just did this as a, uh, you know, just a a placeholder, a sort of a what if. Uh, We did not know yet that uh, Kennedy has made up his mind to run uh, since he has made his intentions clear. People around her say that she's still thinking about it, but it certainly looks like she's leaning uh, towards a campaign. And, uh, you know, she'll be joined by uh, Jesse Mermel, another Brookline resident, former Patrick Communications aide who uh, resigned this week uh, on Wednesday from the Alliance for Business Leadership. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is one of those districts that really runs a, a, a good distance down the state, down toward what, Fall River or New Bedford, down to the south coast? Yeah, so you've got Mermel. Jesse is, is planning. Uh, supposedly, she's going to announce as soon as uh, next week after Kennedy has his Saturday rally. Uh, Dave Cavell, a senior uh, advisor to Amora uh, Healy and who worked in the Obama White House as a speechwriter, also a Brookline resident looking at running. Uh, there's some other people from Newton, uh, Tom, uh, Tommy Vitolo, a state rep from Brookline looking at running. And then you have Senator Paul Feeney, who did acknowledge uh, when I talked to him on Thursday that he is going to take a serious look at this and maybe decide within the next few days, representing uh, some of that southern portion of the district. He, of course, from Foxborough. And Colin, you and Matt uh, also reported this week that this opens up a further world of possibilities uh, because if Treasurer Goldberg moves toward a congressional campaign, then that might potentially open up a uh, a treasurer position. She's only what one year into her uh, four year term, and uh, then it would be up to the legislature to pick someone, may- maybe from among their own, to uh, step into the treasurer's role. Yeah, exactly. If she wins, she would have to, uh, or she would automatically resign uh, as state treasurer, and then, like you said, the uh, legislature would would uh, be able to pick someone to replace her. And that will that will be a blood sport up here, I'm sure. Those types of opportunities don't come along often. I'm sure you'll see a lot of jockeying among House members and senators. Uh, this, uh, you know, some of the people who have run for that seat in the past are gone. People like Tom Conroy, but uh, Barry Feingold uh, back in the Senate. Uh, sort of a freshman all over again this term, but probably someone who would be interested. Uh, of course, we're getting way, way ahead of ourselves. Uh, Deb Goldberg would first have to run and then win and then in 2020, win. but yeah. uh, it's still fun to think about. But that automatic resignation, I, I found that was interesting this week. I didn't I didn't realize that until I dug into the Constitution that uh, there's a provision in the Massachusetts Constitution that says if any um, of these constitutional office holders, you know, uh, treasurer, auditor, attorney general, governor, lieutenant governor, secretary, of state, if they are to even, if they accept a job in Congress, that is considered their automatic resignation from their state uh, constitutional office position. So if Deb Goldberg 
is to run and is to win that seat. Uh, when she accepts that that position in Congress, she will automatically at be resigning moment, from Treasury. Instant, yeah. Which probably means if we get to that point, people like Bob DeLeo and, and Karen Spilka, they're going to have to be thinking about this long before Election Day on 2020 because uh, they're probably not going to want to keep that seat open for or vacant for very long without a treasurer. All right, and uh, the one other big story that we'll focus on this week is uh, the governor's plan for the state's convention centers here in Boston. And uh, Colin, the state convention center authority moved pretty quickly after the governor announced his his plan this week. Um, uh, how are things shaping up? Well, yeah, so the plan is to sell the Heinz Convention Center in Boston's Back Bay and use the proceeds from that sale to finance a roughly 500 or to finance most of a roughly $500 million expansion of the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center in the city seaport district. Uh, the Mass Convention Center Authority voted on Thursday to approve the, the plans. Um, it's really a consolidation of the city's convention center space that the administration says will allow Boston to attract more and larger conventions. Um, it will, they say, allow them to maximize uh, revenue generating activity at the BCEC by um, creating these sort of flex spaces where uh, these traveling shows, uh, they say it'll, it'll facilitate um, back-to-back shows a little bit easier, making those easier to, to pull off uh, and allowing the BCEC to generate more revenue. Um, it would be uh, a it would be an addition of a little more than 200,000 uh, square feet of what they refer to as sellable space. That's the actual convention center, exhibition hall space, uh, meeting rooms, ballrooms, uh, and the like. But in terms of total size, uh, we're looking at about a 500,000 square foot uh, addition to that building. And that's a much smaller expansion than had previously been planned uh, some years ago, right? Yeah, about five years ago, the Governor Deval Patrick and the legislature approved a plan to uh, to expand the the BCEC uh, by by more than a million square feet. Uh, so exactly, this is a smaller expansion, uh, and another key difference here, uh, of course, is that this plan involves the sale of the Heinz. Uh, that wasn't in the picture five years ago. And that offsets the cost of uh, the expansion how much? We, that's that's a good question. We'll see exactly how much it's going to, to cover. Um, uh, the executive director of the Convention Center Authority, uh, David Gibbons, told me on Thursday uh, he's not sure if it will cover all of uh, the cost of the BCEC expansion, uh, but he expects it to cover a whole lot of it. Um, but of course, before the Convention Center Authority can sell the Heinz, they need legislative approval. What form does that take? Does the governor file a bill? Exactly. We're expecting the governor's administration to file a bill shortly to uh, to you know authorize this and really put it all into motion. Um, but that Heinz sale is a big part of it because that's what allows the expansion in in the seaport to to move ahead. So Gibbons told me that the Convention Center Authority is going to be working on a parallel track to the legislature. Sorry to use that phrase twice in one podcast. But, um, they're going to be uh, starting to engage with brokerage firms uh, and have a broker uh, actually market and sell the Heinz for the Convention Center Authority. Uh, but in the meantime, they're also going to be uh, finalizing a request for proposals to find firms to design and build the new expansion of the BCEC. So they're hoping to have all of their uh, sort of have all of their work ready on their end, so that once the legislature 
or when or if the legislature greenlights this, uh, they'll be ready to move forward. And uh, Gibbons said he hopes to have that RFP on the street uh, in the next 30, uh, excuse me, in the next 60 days. Hmm. How do the lawmakers from the districts where the convention centers are, uh, I know you spoke to some of them, how do they feel about this? Um, Huh? Yeah, 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 you know, um, <laughs> we we d- we definitely did not hear any outright opposition. Um, we heard sort of maybe call it tepid support. Um, we hear a lot of people who say, "Okay, this seems like a fine idea, but let's hear the details and you know, let's go through the process with it." Um, not a ton of people coming out and saying, you know, "Rah rah, let's do it, let's push ahead right away." But no one's. Um, no one's saying this can't happen or, or has to have the brakes thrown on it right away. Uh, Senator Nick Collins from South Boston five years ago was a, a, a huge proponent uh, when he was in the House of the, the BCEC expansion. And this time around, he said it sounds like a good plan, and he just wants to, to know all the finer details before he uh, really gets behind it and, and pushes for it hard. Well, thanks, folks. Uh, that's all the time we have for this week, and uh, we're headed back from the podcast layer, uh, back back up to sunlight, and see how many hundreds or thousands of climate strikers are still up there. And how many th- hundreds of thousands of committee advances more we have left to ah. write on what's shaping up to be a busy week. Yeah, look for your state house news service advances in your inbox. Have a great weekend. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.